There is no more famous or poignant image in American history than John F. Kennedy Jr. on his third birthday saluting his father as JFK was about to be laid to rest 50 years ago today. There was another salute to the slain president that day from men in uniform who considered Kennedy their godfather. David Martin has their story. All the armed services took part in the funeral procession, but none felt a greater loyalty to their fallen commander-in-chief than the Army's Green Berets. Just two years before, the young president had endorsed the beret and the special forces who wore it. That's why special forces people have such a strong admiration for President Kennedy. Tom Gaffney was a sergeant in Army Special Forces when JFK visited Fort Bragg, North Carolina in 1961. He took part in the demonstration the president had come to see. Everything from the far-fetched down to the nitty-gritty. And my A-team was uh, given the mission of putting on a mock ambush for him. Gaffney had already been on a secret mission in Laos, training local tribesmen to fight as anti-communist guerrillas. Unconventional warfare, which merited unconventional headgear. We would love to have something to identify us as being different from the rest of the Army. The Army disapproved of the beret as too European-looking, not masculine enough. But after Brigadier General William Yarborough told the President Special Forces wanted them, JFK issued a statement that the Green Beret will be a mark of distinction in the trying times ahead. By the time of his death, Special Forces had doubled in size. When he recognized Special Forces, he recognized that we needed them, and the Army said, whoa, let's go. Then, on November 22, 1963, this is a scene at Andrews Air Force Base. Gaffney was sent on a new mission. And the colonel said, you, 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 and you, and you started picking people out. Did you know what was in the works? And he said, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy has requested special forces people in the honor guard. Gaffney was one of 21 chosen to stand guard over the casket in 30-minute shifts. Green Berets stayed with the casket all the way to the grave and remained on guard after the Kennedy family had left. Then, in an act that symbolized all JFK had done for Special Forces, one of them left his beret right next to the eternal flame. Giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. On with me co-hosting is Chantel Taylor. Chantel is a former British Army combat medic and author of the book, Battle One. Chantel, what's up? Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. How's it going? Yeah, it's going crazy, isn't it? Yeah, world is going crazy, man. Uh, <laughs> we've got a lot, a lot happening. Um, so we, on... In a little bit, you'll hear the conversation that I had with uh, Mike, and Mike is a retired Green Beret who now works um, kind of hunting down child sexual exploitation rings, and he's really doing great work. Uh, he got into it after he retired from the military and was approached by an organization who does this work, 
And obviously, it's important work, and it's kind of shocking some of the actual numbers of children who get kidnapped in the United States. Like, like everything happens in the states, and they are, you know, sexually abused or, you know, forced into prostitution, that kind of thing. And it's just really like, it, it, like if you hear this kind of thing happening in, you know, some kind of third world country somewhere you kind of expect that kind of chaos, but here in the States, it's just crazy to me. Yeah. I I always think it's, um, I'm not, it sounds a strange thing to say, but you almost feel like it's, it's somehow worse because you feel that people should be better educated. You know, it's, it's almost, we have it here in the UK too. And it's, I think what happens is the frightening thing about it is there's a real, like a vast network of people and they organize this stuff. This is like, and it's almost, um, I, was, I was doing a bit of research on this before um, chatting to you, John. And they say that there are, there's this sort of vast network of people and that they're worldwide. And they, you know, they truly believe that that's, yeah. it's normal. And that frightens me, you know, because it's, it's, this, this isn't just where you think, oh, it's got to be all the scummy areas like it are, where I am, council estates, where you are, you know, trailer parks. It's not just, you know, people think they, they always associate it with those sorts of things. But it's not the case at all, you know. This is through every walk of life, and and it's it's almost um, it's frightening, yeah, really. And some of it, like it literally happens, like in California, in New York, and you know, there's a lot yeah. of money involved. Uh, like you said, it's organized, and um, but you know, there are good people out there. You obviously you have here in the states, you have the federal agencies. Um, and and different groups, I guess Homeland Security probably works on this type of stuff, and 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 they really get after it. Um. Yeah, and I well, I think that and this is the another thing, and it's not just that's the thing. What what these sort of you know these gangs don't realize is um it's the ripple effect. If you if you imagine you know that so the 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 damage obviously starts in in a certain place, and the ripple effect of it is is huge because even. Even when the the guys out there, the guys and girls that are doing good and saving these kids, you know, how are they? How, who treats them? Because that's another, and I know clearly that you think about it and you think about it logically and think nothing's obviously as bad as what the, these um, poor kids are going through, but it's all relative. So the person that goes in and has to see all this stuff, people that have to go on these sites pretending to be um, youngsters to communicate with these individuals and then... And do you, do you know what I mean? They're going through the motion. Can you imagine having to kind of put yourself? It's it's almost like you're right. you're having to notionally become. I mean, we call them pedophiles. You say like pedophile, but that you have to notionally become that person. And that that that's to me that's got right. to be really damaging. Yeah, it's interesting you bring it up because uh, Mike yeah. wrote an article about it uh, for my website, and he actually spoke about some of that, and. Well, one thing that he did say was that, you know, being a Green Beret and going to war, he'd seen some pretty bad stuff already. So he said for him personally, he felt like he he probably had a bit of a, um, yeah. like a mechanism for dealing with it versus someone else who, who had never been to war. Because that's heavy going, that isn't work, it? You know? That's heavy, you know, right, on, yeah. on anyone. I don't I don't know. You know what? And, and sometimes I feel like um, I've dealt with child combatants and then you know obviously a lot of those um sorts of kids have been victims of sexual abuse but nothing nothing can prepare you for that sort of thing and and even though 
and like like he says, as a soldier, possibly because we have seen you know pretty bad things. I think like in the cold light of day, when someone who potentially hasn't seen that stuff, they go home. I I can't imagine where their head is. Yeah, absolutely. Because like I I remember seeing like bad stuff, especially with kids going back in and being with um you know my my oppos if you like or my you know comrades and and we got through it together because it was almost something like we shared that and and that's how you kind of deal with it but if, you, if you're a normal guy like you go to work you do your stuff you go home to your family you're looking at your own kids I, I'd really hope that there's um they're paying attention to giving them an outlet too you know rather than just waiting like until like 30 years time to know everyone's sort of mentally fucked because we didn't think about this but I'm pretty sure with the way the world's going that potentially there will be an outlet for, and I hope so for the the people that do that job because it's that's a tough job yeah definitely and um yeah and there's a lot going on today in the world you know um yeah I guess it kind of started with uh that that gas attack in Syria and yeah and then you have the U.S. government on one side saying it was the Assad government and then the Assad government along with the Russian government saying it was the rebels who who gassed yeah. these people and and it's it's really difficult to to know what's really happening over there it's hard isn't it it's, yeah. and you know and again we we're fed so much and do you know what and I, I've been quiet myself sometimes I'll see something I'm outraged I'm like that's fucking shocking and then it takes, and I've I've had friends that have said, um, and this obviously this is what real friends do. They'll say, oh, and I won't obviously I'm not the type that shares everything, but even if I if I do it just spontaneously and think I'm sharing that, but you've got you've now almost got to do due diligence on anything, yeah, because it's almost you know nothing sort of. I think we've got to a point. I was discussing it today with a few of my like friends that work in news, but then also. There's a there's a point now of where the stories become more important than the news, and, it, and then who at the end of the day, but like p- people that I've respected, newspapers, news outlets that I respected in the past have been caught short, and you just think, well, where where can you really turn? I mean, right. we're quite lucky that we we know people in in our own kind of um, areas of operations that, that you can kind of ask for a a little bit of ground truth. But again, it, you know, it's it's not a good place to be at the moment, is it, with all this sort of Right. Who did it? Because, uh, did they do it? Yeah, you know? well, everyone has their agendas, you know, so you have to factor that in. Exactly. And, yeah. um, you know, the Russians, they want to keep their base in the Mediterranean area, so they're going to uh, back the Assad regime no matter what. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is we know that Assad has been guilty of, uh, I guess you can say, crimes against his own people in the past. Yeah. And going back to his father, when his father was... Uh, uh, the the head guy in Syria, so the, you know, looking at the history and and what we know about yeah. him, it's definitely plausible that he could do something like that. Yeah, but then and I don't, I don't, and that's the thing. I don't think it's good enough if someone says he'd be crazy to do it. Well, that to me is not, you know, clearly people are going to go and do it and seek evidence and all this all the all this other great stuff, and right. it is quite convenient. They can then pick, you know, say about the the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and stuff, but. At the end of the day, it, it all sort of falls into slot, to, you know, too easily. Right. To to you, you know, I I personally think that you know people need to be treated as individual cases, and you know, again, yeah, you know, I, I say this really in a, a really strange way, and I feel quite dark saying it. But the UN, you know, 
they're they're usually trusted to go in, but then you just don't know who's, you know, for what for what agenda people are working. Right. And I, I don't know. I, I, it's quite hard to kind of decipher, you know, what's well, what's the, real and what's bullshit. Yeah, and, and that's the problem with even taking action in Syria, in, in my opinion, is that yeah. it's like, how do you know, you know, what's real and what isn't? Obviously, the government um, have access to information that the public doesn't. So that that's yeah. one thing. But, you know, you have, um, like, when this whole situation started, people weren't, in Syria, weren't necessarily uh, protesting against Assad himself. I think he had pretty favorable numbers amongst the people. Yeah. But I think there was a lot of corruption going on in the government kind of below him. And that's what people were angry about. But one of the things that he ended up doing was he released a lot of um, jihadi types and, and, you know, guys who were leaders of different terrorist organizations. Yeah. He purposely let them uh, kind of get into these uh, rebel groups. And then uh, Al-Qaeda moved in, ISIS moved in, and then it just became a free fall. So, and then, then the Obama administration was uh training and supplying weapons to the so-called moderates but it yeah. turned out that they weren't as moderate as we originally thought so then the you know it's like what do you do in this situation um i know and you know i think the sometimes and this sounds harsh and it may sound harsh to people listening but uh, you know when the dust settles you have to take care of your own first and that's and i don't say that lightly i don't say that as in i don't care about things but even if mistakes are made, it's almost like you have to say, you know what? But you can't then you can't then um, sort of forgo your place in the world. Right. Like for instance, so say say for instance, you know, I'm still a fan of George Bush. I like George Bush, and then the, he, but even you know, you still have to have that stance of I know this is going to sound strange to say, but right or wrong, you cannot lose your position in the world. Right. Because what happens is we've seen if a, if a if there's a vacuum in any sort of power, it's filled. And, you know, it either gets filled with someone worse or it gets filled with just a whole myriad of people that are, you know, going to cause mayhem. So I don't think there's any sort of straight straight line answer so long as I think it's almost a case of holding the line and whatever that line is at the moment. I don't know. Right. And, and with um, Trump, the Trump administration responding yeah. and uh, firing missiles at this airfield, well, for like, I look at it a few different angles. On the on the one hand, you can say, yeah, he he drew his his red line, uh, his so called yeah. red line, and he acted. So that will send a message to people. Like, if he says something, he means yeah. it. And and I guess to me that is a positive, right? But yeah, then the the on the on, there's, there's always a however right. John on the on the flip <laughs> That's side the, the the Russians are saying that the airfield. Uh, wasn't destroyed and and the planes are still taken off from it. So if that's the case, then it was really just a for show type of action. But sure, force, yeah, right. And then the, then my question is is what's the end game? You know, what if if you you yeah. fire these missiles to say that you mean what you say, and you say what you mean? Where does it end? Right, but yeah. then what's what's next? The, the Russians are gonna get more aggressive so you're going to get more aggressive and then we're going to head into a whole another conflict over There's a lot of posture yeah, isn't exactly there? and yeah a lot and you know a lot of people and i disagree with this a lot of people in the states uh, and a lot of people who i'm friends with and you know uh 
you know, retired warfighters or, or active duty warfighters, mm-hmm. you know, they're all about, uh, you know, being tough, looking tough, you know, having that perception. But at the end of the day, in, in my opinion, like you, you could talk as tough as you want. People, I feel like people are still going to do what they do. Like we dropped a nuke on Japan and five years later we were in a full on war with Korea and China. Like they didn't give a fuck about the nuke. So the, yeah. like, I feel like people are going to do what they do regardless. Um, and, and, yeah. and you should just try and, you know, as best you can try and, you know, be a few moves ahead of people and, and do things that way, you know? Yeah. And that, I suppose that in the difference being, you know, if you think of the, the great wars we fought in the past is that technology's moved on. So, and it's again, as dark as this sounds, you know, if, if that were to ever happen again, that's, it's not going to be the same. It would, do, it would just be a version of it. It would just be, it'd be different, wouldn't it? But you'd still have the same people going through the same kind of motions. And I, I don't even know. It's, yeah, it's, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because then in the, in the meanwhile, there's always, there's other stuff going on. And then, Someone else gets involved and they want to have their their sort of say on the world stage, and it only takes a lunatic, and then do you know what? And then it takes two lunatics. Right. And I suppose in in some ways, it, as bad as it is, it's almost you need to be on the side that um, that's willing to go the furthest. And that's obviously again, it's not tough talk; it's just a fact. Because regardless of what anyone says in this world, and regardless of you know, it, it's, it's, it's actually quite a luxury to, to have, to be socially liberal. That's quite a luxury to have. But at the end of the day, you don't, you don't want to be on the losing side because that's, and that, that's a fact, you know, anyone that says, oh yeah, but it's not fair. So what do, so we hand that victory to so-and-so. Well, but when victory means your country's in shit state, that's not such an attractive option, is it? So yeah, you know, so it's almost like, um, it's not going to be, I don't think there's any sort of attractive option. Obviously, everyone wants to go through um, the diplomatic channels. But when you've got, let's face facts, you know, Putin is traveling slightly light. You know, he's not the, the straightest sort of um, player, is he? And you look at Chechnya, and, and, and but I suppose neither, neither are any, none of us are. But at least you, you tend to think that you have some sort of decency left. Right. And I, I think uh, when you're talking decency, I mean, obviously... Uh, propaganda aside, um, Putin is a You're keeping your pants on, John. <laughs> Sorry, I'd say that <laughs> Putin is a a retired um, spy. You yeah, know? like th- this. This is a guy who was a KGB colonel, and he's sharp. You know, he knows how to manipulate things. Oh, and yeah. the, you know, there are many, many like he's not alone. But the the fact that this is kind of playing out the way it is, it almost looks like a a game. It's a, a propaganda war, isn't it? And it's how you know it's, it could almost be a tv script it's almost like you're watching homeland oh, yeah it's exactly, crazy exactly. and it's and i've just finished watching that yeah. you know and i know that's far-fetched but then is it because look at what's happening right right <laughs> but well, that's what makes homeland a good show but yeah there's just been i must say actually this season's been the best yeah i'm i'm like halfway and I'm, through i'm it. gutted about quinn oh shit yeah yeah don't don't uh, give me <laughs> <Sorry, John. laughs> No spoilers, no. So don't listen back to this interview. Yeah. Um, yes, and, and the, another point actually, and it's a little bit off piece, but the same type of stuff we're talking about is the. I don't know what's going on, but I've seen a lot of reports with um, regards to now concentration camps being set up in Chechnya for homosexuals. Oh yeah, I saw, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's 
Yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's almost like what's the yeah, what's I don't even get what that's about. <laughs> well, Chesney is <laughs> a pretty crazy place. Like, uh, yeah, the Russians been fighting what there the for a while. What the fuck's going on, John? Yeah. <laughs> um, what else? Let's talk about some. But like we got, we've got to cover the American Airlines. Yeah. Well, no, it's not it's United <laughs> Airlines. Because that, seriously, I, I've been crying because yeah, the, the memes and the videos. You know, I love, I love airplane. You know, and I loved uh, is it Leslie Nielsen and um, those fil- those films were just um, and just seeing them sort of brought back to life has been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and clearly, that's that's not the PC answer, but it was. It's been comedy gold isn't it yeah it's hilarious and it's just funny the <laughs> ceo of um the airlines at first he was like oh you know the guy was belligerent and then i, I think mm. their stock dropped like crazy i think they lost like uh 800 million it was a billion yeah, dollars yeah no, it was a billion dollars last night i'd, I'd well yeah what if that's true but that was yeah it's like jesus christ yeah it's a lot but once once that number dropped now he's like oh you know his his whole tune changed so um, you know, I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be. Is that's got longevity? You know, you ha- it's going to be quite hard to come back from that. <laughs> yeah, and and the the guy. Um, what's ridiculous about it is is you know they overbooked the flight, but they had these yeah. four employees who work for the airline who needed to get somewhere, so just put them on another flight. Like I'm I'm sure yeah. at the entire airport they could have found another flight going wherever they had to go. And, uh, and and that's the thing you can't like I know, I know this unless it was an absolute emergency or there's a bona fide reason and you you politely said is there anyone prepared to do this I know that sounds you can't just it's just dragging people off their seats because yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting my, I'm putting myself in that position of you just you potentially would just lose it oh yeah I mean you you pay money for we've all it. we've all seen yeah you, yeah. you, you arrive at the you, you could be needing to get home for a birthday yeah. or you've gone through you've been basically you know. In fact, I won't use a num PC. You've you've went through security. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, especially here in the states. You've been attacked during <laughs> security, <laughs> intruded. Um, yeah, and we've all seen falling down with Michael Douglas, haven't yeah. we? So, yeah, I just that was comedy. Anything else that was funny that can maybe take let's let's shine some light on this fucking dark world, John? Because <laughs> you, you're about to just yeah so. But you know, back to the subject at hand. Yeah, and it, it, I think, it's um, funny because well, it's not really funny. I guess it's funny in like a, a comedic sense. But the guy, <laughs> he starts yelling, and these security officers who work at the airport, they yanked him like out of the seat, out of the row, and he hit his face on the other uh, <laughs> on the other armrest, <laughs> <laughs> and that's when he like knocked him out and like just dragging him. Um, but uh, I, I think he got like a just... big fat lawsuit over that. Well, yeah, and it, and you think if you think about it, whilst that was going on, I can just imagine that, and that you put again put yourself in the security um, bloke's um, position. You just think, yeah, let's just get. We, our aim is to get this bloke off the plane. They're not thinking about the the absolute nightmare that's going to unfold afterwards. Right, right, right. And it, yeah, I mean, today I must say at the amount of videos, and I, I must, I'll apologise now, but I keep sharing a couple because they're funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and um it's just funny because you can't do anything without it ending up on video anymore so no i know but i will say this and this is another thing and I, it's like you, you know when you have that thing that sort of pisses you off for the week yeah i did when i was doing the opening for the um the museum i you know they asked me if i'd speak to the press I said yeah i'm more than happy because obviously it's, it's important that we um 
like share the history of of our militaries and things like that. And then, and, and so I was a victim a tiny little bit, although I did say the things, but it was all in context. And it said, um, you know, this sort of article came out and it made me sound really angry. And I was like, wow, that's really? not, you know, I, I was kind of more angry that the journalist didn't really know what she was talking about as opposed to the subject matter. And then in context, we were talking about me having to take the life of a Taliban fighter. And I said to her, yes, and she, I mean, stupidly asked, how did it feel at the time? And I was like, well, you know, at, at that moment, especially obviously, and, you know, most soldiers and veterans will understand this, is that you know, I didn't really see the, the target as a human. It was just a, a threat at that moment in time. Yeah. So obviously that then led to the, like, in quotes, I don't see humans, I just see threats. And I thought, <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought, well, it, but that's what I'm saying. So it just shows you how. And I should know this stuff because I've given the, uh, you know several interviews about different things in Afghanistan. But it just shows you how easily it is just to take that. Um, if you actually had the conversation in context, you'd understand exactly why I said that. But now that potentially could look like it should be on a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with some sort of gnarly Viking. I don't see humans. I just see threats. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So that's that. Yeah, so that was a direct quote. So that pissed me off. So I must say that. So if you read that article, just try and yeah, ignore that. Ignore. I, I was actually angry at her and not the. Yeah, interesting. Not the Taliban guy. No, you know he was there, you know, fighting like everyone else. You know, right. it's, that's my point. Is that you? You do have potentially have respect for your enemy, and then it's then who who's left standing. You know, again, don't say that lightly. That's just a fact, isn't it? Right, right, exactly. Hmm. But again, just remember, and you heard that quote. You know? <laughs> I'm not saying it again because it makes me sound <laughs> like a fucking idiot. But um, yeah, funny, funny. Ha ha. Said no one. <laughs> well, that, that's the media right. for you. So I know. So if it can, if it can happen to little old me, <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful. Yeah, you have. So, but anyway, we're obviously um, looking forward to hearing. Um. Of all the hard work, yeah, with well, Mike, yeah, yeah, that's happening, you know, yeah, because it's um, obviously joking aside, that's it's something that's extremely important. And, and on a on a sort of side note, it's when times like this, when again there's a vacuum created by all this hysteria around what's going on, is that we kind of forget what's going on in our own shores, right? Exactly. And that's when that's when these these groups groups like this that he's going to talk about thrive on this shit. Because they're, they're kind of then, their little world's kind of so far under the radar because there's so much, you know, so much more being highlighted in the world. Right. It's, it's kind of gives them a time to breed, which, you know, we can't allow that to happen. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um... and we all, we I think we all play our own parts, regardless of way, whether you're hunting these people, it's just to be mindful. And it doesn't mean if you see someone with their kid, you know, it just means be mindful of the, there are certain little um, points that you can look at, you know, when a kid's not not happy, you can see it. You can see what you can see when they're not getting a sweetie, and when they get, you know, there's bad stuff going on. Yeah, the, actually, the other day there was a um, the the is here in New York City. Cops arrested some guy who was he got into some argument with some with a woman and and her mother on the train. The woman had her her young daughter there, and the guy tried to like snatch the the kid away on the on the subway. Oh wow! Yeah, and the, the cops caught up with him a few days ago. Yeah, um, but yeah, even it's things just, like yeah. that. Like if I was on the subway and I saw that, I would I would just lay the guy out. You know, 
Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. Some because people sometimes get there. There are enough people out there that do get stuck in, and you, and I hate to say that sometimes that can you can pay the ultimate price for that. But that's that's why people like that are born. You know, is is that you? I don't think you'd ever forgive yourself if you didn't do something. Right. Right. Yep. You know, and it's like yeah, our responsibility, isn't it, to each other? Um. All right, so with that being said, now I'll play the conversation that I had with Mike, uh, retired Green Beret, as we talk about uh, his background and his career in the Army and then what the work that he's doing now in countering child sexual exploitation here in the United States. GlobalRecon.net, giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. Uh, I am on with Mike, and uh, Mike is a former army green beret and now he does some really interesting and important work um and we'll talk about that in a second mike what's up brother hey man how's it going it's good man how's it going pretty good thanks for having me no problem man thanks for coming on so mike but uh before we talk about what you currently do um can we talk about your background uh so you were in the u.s army uh you didn't start out as a Green Beret. You transitioned into that. Uh, so can we just like go from the very beginning of your military career? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was 2000 and, um, I was living in a pretty bad area of, uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. And I looked around and everybody around me wasn't doing anything special and I knew I needed to get out of there. So I hopped up on a website on an army website and I saw a picture of a tank, an M1 tank. And it said, do you want to explore an M1 tank? And I was like, yes, I do. And so I called up the recruiter. I said, hey, man, I want to join the Army. I want to be a tanker. He said, I'll be at your house at 630. And so he showed up with his laptop, uh, gave me the presentation. My mom walked in the door and, you know, she got scared and everything because baby boy's leaving finally. And, uh. And so I joined as a, as a 19 kilo, as a tanker. And then I got stationed in Fort Hood, Texas. Um, I met my, uh, my wife and, uh, I had a daughter and right after she was born, I deployed to Iraq in operation Iraqi freedom one. That was in 2003. Uh, my contract was coming up and, uh, I wanted out, you know, I wanted to, go back to being a normal guy, raise my family. And so I did that. And by the time I got out, my contract expired. I actually had a wife, a son, and a daughter. And so I tried my hand at a normal life for about four years. But I remember in Iraq, I seen Green Berets for the very first time. And man, I was blown away with what they were doing. I thought they were rock stars. So it was always, it was always stuck in my head. And after about three and a half, four years of being out, I knew I was getting older. I needed to go try to do this before time expires. So I joined the army again. Uh, this time I went in as 11 Bravo infantry. And because I was out for so long, they made me go back through basic training. And I got told I was going to be inserted into week 10 of basic training, you know, at the tail end. But when I got there, they stuck me in week three. So I, I pretty much starting all over again. And so I finished that, went to airborne school, and then I went to 82nd Airborne. 
I was in 82nd Airborne for a couple of months. I called up the Special Forces recruiter. I told him my deal and what I want to do. And three weeks later, went to selection, passed that. And uh, I got assigned as an 18 Charlie, which is a Special Forces engineer. And I got Persian as my language, uh, Persian Farsi. And then I got, after my school there, I got assigned to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, 5th Special Forces Group, Fort Campbell. So once I was at Fort Campbell, I deployed to Oman. I was there for about five weeks just doing some, uh, some medical training for the Omani Special Forces. Then after that, I got deployed to Afghanistan, and I was there for about seven months. And basically while I was in Afghanistan, I, I just I went too hard for too long. And when I got back home, it's like my body just kind of just shut down on me and I could barely move. Uh, I got checked by the docs, had MRIs done and everything like that. And the doc sat me down and he was like, Hey man, this is what's wrong. You know, we can either attempt to hide you out for the remainder of your career, which would have been about 10 years, or you could put in for a medical retirement. And so I don't want to sit back and do paperwork and not be deployed and stuff like that because that was that was extremely hard for me. You know, seeing all my all my friends and stuff talking about upcoming deployments and the cool things that they're doing and I'm over here doing paperwork. So I took the retirement option. Um while I was doing a retirement process, I got approached by somebody and said, "Hey, there's this thing it's called the Child Hero Rest or the uh, excuse me the Hero Child Rescue Corps, and it's recruiting veterans from the special operations community who are wounded or disabled. Are you interested? And so I looked it up a little bit. You know, there was a little recruitment video on YouTube, and I saw that it had to do with basically saving kids and rescuing kids with the use of computer forensics. It was to fight child sexual exploitation. And so I jumped on that. Um, I declined. You know, I had some other opportunities that came about. A lot of that big money stuff, you know, the mercenary junk and whatever, going back overseas. But I knew this was more of a once in a lifetime deal and it was to save kids. You know, and uh, at that time I have. You know, now I have three kids, so anything with anything that has to do with kids is is huge for me. So once I retired, I went to training for that, and um, and I never looked back. You know, and that's what I do now. I do computer forensics, fighting child sex, child sexual exploitation. Yeah, and that, and that's really important work. I mean, uh, you 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 know you hear about these kind of things and. <laughs> You know, immediately, like, uh, you, you would think, like, other, you know, in Africa or places like that, that th where <clears throat> these type of things happen all the time. But this this is happening in the States. And uh, I think Americans aren't as aware of it as they should be or, or they're not in tune to how often it happens. I mean, it's, it's really a big problem. Yeah, and you don't really know how big it is until you're actually in these classes and you're seeing live feeds of 
so I was in a class one time and they pulled up a map of the United States and it was a live feed of basically child pornography being downloaded. And, and within 15 minutes, the map of the U S was red, you know, and it's, that's how bad it is. And a lot of people, you know, I've talked to, to adults about what I do and people have even said, you know, what's child pornography? You know, some people don't even know what it is, you know? So yeah, it blows my mind. Um, a lot of other people, they know what it is, but it's kind of like, you know, if I cover my ears and I close my eyes, it's not happening, you know, but right. it is. And, and people kind of just, you know, I, I pretend it doesn't happen, that kind of thing. Or, you know, it's, is it one of those things where it's like, you know, you don't really take note of it, you know, until it happens to you or someone close to you. Right. See, with... With a lot of typical crimes, you know, uh, murder, dealing drugs, car theft, you see that stuff out there. You know, you see, you hear about some people, you know, in a shootout or somebody stealing a car and crashing it into a building or something like that. With this child pornography stuff, most of that stuff is behind closed doors. So you can live in the nicest neighborhood. In, in the city and you don't even know that there's pedophiles in that same neighborhood that you live at that are uploading and downloading child pornography every day. Right. Or worst case scenarios, people in your own neighborhood that are actually producing it, you know, people, it's so bad. And these people are so sick and demented that they'll use their own kids that's crazy to make. Yeah. They'll use their own kids to make their own child pornography. You know, I've seen, I've seen cases where people have gone up online and met other people in chat rooms talking about, you know, Hey, if you bring, you know, your four year old daughter over here, I'll let you have your way with my three year old son. Wow. You know, and then they, then they film it. And they upload it to their internet, and once it's on the internet, that's it. Never getting it back. Right. So that kid's life is ruined even more so. And is it is it done like like more as like a uh, a business where people are making money off of this, or is it you know just like like you said, like some really sick person just filming? you know, kids having sex or something like that, or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. You know, some people are just, you know, I deal with some people who just go and, and upload videos or download videos you know, for free. And then there's people that, that make lots of money, you know, all the, all the sex trafficking, you know, the, the child trafficking, uh, sexual exploitation stuff that's going on, you know, it's just like, it's just like the porn, the porn industry, you know, the adult pornography industry, billion dollar business, multi-billion dollar business. But with this, it's illegal. And a lot of people don't talk about it. A lot of people don't know it exists, but it's there. 
and certain people make tons and tons of money off of it. Yeah, there was a, was that, I don't know if it was like recently or within the last year, uh, there were like some, some guys who were like child actors in Hollywood and, and he had come out and he said like, there's like a lot of stuff going on and, you know, kids were getting exploited and, and like things were happening that you would be shocked if you had heard about, you know, some of the individuals involved and, uh, it's just kind of blows my mind, you know, to, to, and, and I just can imagine the stuff that you see all the time. And, um, so I wanted to ask you, and, and, uh, this is something that, um, people have because you've written an article on my website and it was it was pretty popular and a lot of people were sharing it and responding to it and a question had popped up about how you like the kind of how you deal with it because obviously sitting there and having to look at some of the stuff and look through it and and deal with like catching some of these guys that that has to have a a psychological effect on you or, or anybody working in that field? It does. Um, for the most part, I've learned to deal with it. I could handle it pretty well. Uh, a couple things that I do is I always have something funny playing, you know, minimized on a screen, like a funny movie or a cartoon or something like that, just to kind of keep my mind off it. I recognize what's legal and what's illegal. And so as I come up on, an illegal picture or movie instead of sitting there and, and really studying it, I'll recognize it's illegal. Boom. Put it in the illegal folder. Another thing I do is every day at lunch, I go upstairs and I hit the weights. You know, the weights, weights are an amazing way to conduct therapy. You go out there and you take out all your aggression on some iron. Um, and another thing I do is if I'm watching a video, because one of the things I have to do when I'm writing my reports is I have to get some of the worst things, some of the worst pictures and videos that are in that case. And I have to write in graphic detail you know, what I'm seeing and what's going on. I never have the volume on because hearing, hearing that little kid cry and plead for somebody to stop doing those things to him. It's, it tears you up. Yeah. That's terrible. So I'll, I'll look at that stuff for a little while. Um, you know, a typical eight hour day, I'm not at the computer looking at the, looking at that stuff for a straight eight hours. I'll look at it for maybe 30 or 40 minutes, get up, walk around, talk to some coworkers or something, uh, go to the gym, go get something to eat, you know, kind of clear my head, take a break, give my brain a, a break and then come back and, and get to work. Uh, so for the most part though, I'm pretty good at leaving it at work. Once I leave work, I kind of dump out of my head everything that I just saw. There's been a couple times though, where I've dealt with stuff that was, you know, so terrible that at work I found myself shaking. And when I got home later on that night, I was still shaking because I was just so disturbed by the things that I saw. 
Um, there's a couple cases where I couldn't get any sleep for a week because every time I close my eyes, certain images would pop up in my head. Uh-huh. No, but I mean, I talk to a lot of people, and people say, oh, "I don't know how you can do it. I can never do this." The sad thing is, somebody has to. Right. You know, this stuff needs to be done. Kids need to be saved. And pedophiles and these, these monsters need to be put away. You know, because if we don't go out there and hunt these pedophiles, they're just going to keep on doing it. Even the guys that are simply downloading pictures and videos, you know, as long as there's a desire, as long as there's a want for this stuff, people are still going to produce it. Right. There's almost like so, it's, it's a market for it. So, Yep. And with the way technology is now, you know, more and more countries, you know, third world countries coming up online, this stuff isn't going away. You know, so, you know, really the best that we can do is go after as many people as we can. Right. You know, try to try to find try to find some of these kids and get them the therapy that they need to continue on their life. You know, a lot of these kids that you see in these pictures and movies, um, and and I've noticed this in some of the pictures and movies that I've seen, these kids, they're absolutely willing to do this stuff with the adults. And that's because these monsters, they sit there and they groom these kids, you know, just like, just like you and I were taught as kids, you know, hey, it's normal when you get up in the morning to brush your teeth. You know, it's normal to say please and thank you when asking for a cup of juice. You know, these kids are groomed to think it's okay to touch daddy in that certain area, you know, or do this and that. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes these are, these are actual parents of the kids. These people are so sick and twisted. People will actually have children for the simple fact that they now have somebody that they can do that stuff with. That's crazy. Yep. And, and would you say like as a, as a war fighter, as someone who's been to war that, you know, someone with your background, it may be, I I don't want to say easier to deal with, uh, like in terms of the, the psychological effects, but more manageable versus someone who is in this field doing this work and hasn't been to a war zone and seen some of the things you'll see overseas. You know, at first the, uh, the program I got put in the hero child rescue Corps, it was open to only, uh, special operations people okay, right. because of our, of our ability to compartmentalize certain things. Uh, now it's open, uh, service wide as long as you're wounded or disabled. Um, so, you know, we got brought in with, with the thought that, you know, we can, we can leave that stuff at work. You know, uh, the problem with that is yeah, we're good at compartmentalization, but when you go to war and you see your buddy shot or you kill the enemy, man, you go to war, you know, what's going to happen. 
you know, it's, it's not a shock to you. It's not a surprise. You know, I go to a war zone. I see a dead enemy. Well, that's war. You know, you're never really ready to see literally a, a two week old baby being raped. You know, when you see that stuff, you don't get used to it. You know, it shocks you every time. Right. So you don't get, you don't get used to it, but you realize that you have to deal with it because that's the nature of the job. Right. And, and so your job, so do you, is it strictly just doing this online or are you ever uh, going after people like that kind of thing? A bit of both. Uh, case that I'm working on right now, it got brought to me from another agency. They're just, they were too backed up with, basically they, they just had too much child pornography to go through. So they said, Hey Mike, can you help me out? So I'm helping with that. Some other times I might go on a search warrant and how that would work is whichever agency I'm working with, uh, will go in there. They'll clear the house. Uh, make sure there's no, you know, hostile intent in there or anything like that. Nobody with a gun. And once that's clear, then they'll send in for me and I'll come in and I'll bring, I call it my nerd kit and I'll go in there and I'll verify that there is child pornography on their computer or, you know, whatever media device they're using. You know, we find, you know, we find hidden thumb drives and memory cards and people try to, throw phones over the fence as soon as they see, you know, somebody with a badge coming and knocking on their door. So once it's determined that there is child pornography in the house, then I'll take all that stuff back to my lab and start the forensic examination. A lot of the times I don't even see the suspect. They'll go in there, they'll talk to the suspect. And really a lot of these guys will admit what they're doing. It's kind of like it's, it's it's so weird. It's so weird because you know a lot of times you might come across somebody who killed somebody and they'll deny it left and right. Oh no, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't kill anybody because they don't want to go to prison. Some of these guys, they know what they're doing is absolutely terrible. And it's like they kind of want to get caught. They'll come out and they'll admit it. You know, yes. I download child pornography. Here it is. Oh, don't forget this computer underneath my bed. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. And so most of the time, these guys will be taken away and I'll never see them. Yeah, I'll just go in there and I'll get their stuff and, you know, okay, yep, there it is. And then go to work in my lab. So it's it's actually illegal. Like, even if someone has is not involved in the actual process or acts of uh, engaging in sex with a child or a minor, it's still illegal to download this uh, pornography, child pornography, right? Right, yep. Yep, and we have ways of seeing, you know, exactly who's downloading it and what they're downloading, when they downloaded it. Yeah, so downloading it uh, using like a peer to peer software, you know, like, like back in the day, like Napster or something like that, you know, yeah, yeah. LimeWire, 
uh, allowing people to upload from your library, well, now you're distributing. Hmm. So that's a whole nother monster right there. Right. So, I so guess that, yeah, all that all that stuff is illegal. Yep. Right. So there's no playing around with any of it. Like if you if you're downloading it, the red flag is is up. Right. Yep. And then through my through my forensic tools, I can see things like things that you searched for, you know, or if you deleted this or that. Oh wow. So, so we can do, I can't go into all what we can do, but right. you know, if you're doing it, we're going to get you. Right. Yeah. That, that's crazy stuff, man. And that's, it's really heavy. I mean, just hearing it, like just puts my mind in like a, a bit of a dark space because that's like really, really fucking sick. And, you know, I know it must be difficult for you guys to deal with it, but like you said earlier, it's something that has to be done. And if, uh, you know, who's going to do it if, if you guys aren't willing to do it? Um, so Mike, uh, would you be cool with sharing a story from, uh, your time in the army, maybe a deployment story or, or something that just stood out to you? Uh, yeah, sure. So really the thing that changed me the most was my team got deployed in 2012 to Afghanistan and I was having some medical issues because I mean, basically just about every, everybody on a special forces team is broken. We just hide it because we don't want to be the, the weak link, you know? Well, my medical issues were a little bit out of control, and so I went and got checked out, and they wanted me to hang back for an additional two weeks while my team got deployed. So while my team was over there, I came in and work one day, and I saw somebody, and they said, hey, man, you here? And I was like, hear what? It's like, dude, three of your guys got taken out by a grenade. And so my heart sunk and come to find out, uh, my team and their Afghan commando counterparts, uh, were involved in an ambush and two of my teammates got messed up really bad. And one guy, he was okay. Uh, he took some shrapnel, but overall he was all right. But the two other guys were pretty serious and they got medevaced out. Um, and, and that destroyed me. One of the worst things, one of the biggest fears for a team guy is something happening to your team and you not being there, you know, and the one time that I let some medical stuff take precedence, that's exactly what happened. You know, so, you know, to this day, I still blame myself for it. You know, people tell me, you know, oh, you weren't there and you had no idea that was going to happen. It's not your fault. Well, to me, it was my fault because the way our team dynamic was, if I was there, three of my teammates wouldn't have been huddled together in that house when that grenade came through the window. You know, I would have been with one of the other Green Berets and we would have took our squad. And that probably would have never happened. And so... Basically, it's a survivor's guilt 
you know, if, if you're in, if you're in a firefight, you know, if you're in a firefight, you know, like I said earlier, if you go to war, if you're in a firefight, somebody gets hit, it's kind of expected. It's what happens. I mean, it's definitely not good, but it's what happens when something goes wrong and you're not there. That's, that's terrible. You know, I was living basically the nightmare situation for a team guy. Right. And, and so and was this, at, this I, was after your first deployment as a Green Beret? Uh, well, we came back from Oman and that was, that wasn't like combat or anything. That was just, uh, medical stuff. And then for actual combat, like go to war stuff, this was the first time. Okay. Yep. So yeah, we were, we had gone through uh, special forces advanced urban combat, you know, to get together as a team. And so we can fight better going house to house and going through the streets. And then after that, you know, we were going to Afghanistan and got everything together. I thought I was leaving and I said, Nope, Mike, uh, you got to hang back. We found something. Basically they found something in my head that they had to check out. And so while I was getting those tests, that's when it all went happened. That's when it, it happens. So, and it's, you know, not being there for my team, that's something that, I mean, it's not a day that goes by, you know, I barely even talk to anybody on my team because of that, you know, it's like I wasn't there for them, you know, when they needed me. So it's hard, you know, it's hard. And I find, I find little ways to keep my mind off stuff and, you know, not get depressed and everything, you know, so basically when I got back and my body shut down on me and I was told I, I had to retire. So I, I had, I got taken off a team. I got told I can't do green beret stuff anymore. You know, the job that I love so much I had survivor's guilt. And then I didn't know what I was going to do as a career once I got out. So his stuff hit me hard. Right. You know, I was, I was in depression for a good amount of time, you know, uh, because of my pain, I was on so many pills. I was in a constant haze. You know, I had no idea what was going on around me at any given time, you know, that my body became so tolerant of these pills. I just taking, I just kept taking more and more and more, you know, uh, eventually I was able to see that I was, I was getting dependent on this stuff. And so I stopped all the medications and I just, I dealt with the pain. I decided to live, I'd rather live with the pain than be a pill popper. And that's a, another thing I'd have to deal with in life, you know? So went that route. Right. And so then, you know, for me, I like to have a job that has meaning and purpose. You know, being a Green Beret has meaning and purpose. You know, I worked hard to get where I was. I was very proud of it. I loved team life. You know, we were a family. And so getting out, it's like, well, where's my purpose and direction now? So thankfully, I was approached with this, this Hero Corps thing, you know, helping out some kids. So, you know, basically, my life found new purpose and meaning. So, but even, even with doing that, 
mentally, I was still going through a lot of stuff. You know, I was still, I was still getting depressed a lot. Uh, I was still getting angry. You know, I found myself at random times, just anger would come on really, really fast. And if there was somebody in my way, I was going to go through them. So I recognized all that. Again, I got lucky. So I went to the VA, got some help with that. I got put on some medications, you know, for, uh, to control all that stuff. I went to some therapy sessions, you know, but none of that stuff worked. So then I heard about this thing called GORUCK and I heard it was started by a green beret. Basically it's, it's like bridging, bridging the gap between military and civilian it's all the cadre there. All the instructors are, you got guys, you know, former Green Berets, Rangers, SEALs, MARSOC Marines, stuff like that. And we take civilians out on long ruck marches, carrying heavy things and teaching them lessons that we learned in the special operations community. And I started doing that and I got with a couple of the other cadre who went through a lot of the same stuff that I went through and man, that saved my life right there. You know, by talking to those guys that helped me out more than any medication or, or class that I've ever been to. So just kind of being around the people who understand what you've gone through and, and maybe have had similar feelings and that kind of thing. Right. And see helping kids, doing a child sexual exploitation stuff. And that is for one, I hate computers. All right. And of course I hate child pornography, but now this is what I do. I work on computers with child pornography. It's terrible, terrible. I hate it, but it gives me, gives me purpose. And, you know, I know I'm doing good in the world, but with that said, when you go from a barrel chested freedom fighter to sitting on a desk, working on a computer all day, that is a hard pill to swallow. You know, it took me probably a full year to, to adjust, you know, I'm not getting on the stack. I'm not getting in a stack that's about to go through that door. You know, I'm sitting back with my thumb drive in my hand and that took, that took a lot. So by doing this GORUCK stuff, that actually, it it gives me a nice balance. So I'm out there helping kids, but then I'm also satisfying some of that special operations lifestyle and some of that team lifestyle by doing this GORUCK stuff, by leading civilians and teaching them things that I've learned and making all these like little scenarios and using my creativity. So and also, you know, getting with the other cadre to swap, you know, war stories and, you know, let us let each other know that we're there for each other, which is amazing. So all this stuff, it's really helped me balance out. Right. And and having balance is really important, especially for a guy like yourself. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and obviously there's a lot of... Um, Guys, ex-military, ex-soft, uh, or infantry warfighters who leave and they they feel that, and I, I what I feel like is that they lose that balance 
and that sense of purpose, and that's where things kind of go wrong. And then to climb out of that hole is to is to find that balance again and find your purpose, just like you did and and are doing. And uh, and and that's when things kind of get better. And it's just interesting because I've had so many guys on the podcast who would say, "Yeah, you know, I, I went to the VA and." You know, I was on all these different pills and medications, and it wasn't until I got off of that and tried alternative uh, options, you know, such as being around like-minded individuals, uh, that things got better, you know? Yep. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of people, not just from the special operations community, but military in general, you know, they're they're used to a lifestyle. You know, they're used to structure or they're used to to a certain purpose in life. And then when they're forced out of that, it's like, what now? And so people have a hard time finding themselves. And so many times I've seen people turn to the bottle or turn to drugs or worse, you know, handful of my buddies took their own lives because they just couldn't deal with stuff anymore. You know, so Finding finding life after the military is so important. So I'm so thankful for those two opportunities. That just kind of, honestly, they just kind of fell in my lap. Right. You know, the the Hero Corps thing, well, I happened to know a guy in this one office that had heard about it. And he just came up to me and told me, hey, Mike, I heard about this thing. And so, boom, I got hooked up with that. You know, then the other half of that balance, the GORUCK stuff, you know, making me feel like I'm still sort of in the military and still leading people and teaching people. A coworker came up to me and said, hey, Mike, are you doing this GORUCK that's coming to town soon? And then I said, what is GORUCK? And I looked it up for myself and I, you know, I saw I was started by a Green Beret. And I was like, hey. I'm one of those guys. There can't be too many people like that in my area. So let me contact them and see what's up. You know, one thing led to another and I'm not doing my thing with those guys. So, so, so go ruck is like countrywide, right? Cause I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen those go ruck events here in New York city as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's actually worldwide. Okay. Uh, yeah. I have a buddy who actually just did uh St. Patrick's day go ruck in Ireland. Oh, nice. Yep. And then they also have, uh, you know, the, the D-Day invasion. They have commemorative events for D-Day. Oh, that's awesome. Yep. Yeah, so it's it's huge. It's huge. It's great. The people there, you know, these guys are amazing. I don't know what to expect from the people. You know, when I got in, I expected it to be a bunch of people who – who were like those gear nerds, you know, like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. They go out there, never been in the military, but they have every single piece of gear and they know everything about spec ops, you know, and they'll put you in your place, even though you've been in spec ops, you know, and tell you what you really do. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like that, but it's not. It's people from every walk, every walk of life. You know, you have your doctors, you have your engineers, you have your waitresses, and they all come out and they all get together and work as a team. And they don't, I've never been asked, you know, the typical 
civilian question, oh, how many people have you killed? Yeah. Never been asked that, <laughs> which I'm so thankful for. And and they take us, they take, you know, the special operations guys, the cadre, and they accept us into their family, you know, and so it's amazing. And they fully support you. And this is great. Right. That's awesome, man. And and is that like, uh, is there like local chapters or is it just like every, you know, every so often or time period or a period of time, it'll it'll swing by uh, through different states? They have events all over the country every weekend. Okay. Yeah. And then you have some commemorative events. Uh, actually, I was in for Valentine's Day. Uh, I was in Santa Cruz, California, and I did two Valentine's Day events. And you have like different levels of the challenge. You know, you have you have a heavy, you know, which is a 24-hour endurance event. You have a tough, which is a 12-hour endurance event. You have a light, which is typically a, a five or six-hour endurance event. And, you know, basically how, how creative the cadre is, is, you know, whatever you want to do, hey, man, don't kill the participants. <laughs> that's like that's like the rule, you know. Everything else is on us. So one of the things I did for my Valentine's Day light is I surprised everybody at the end of one. And I had these Valentine's Day cards and had some folks help me out. So they went to an old folks home retirement community and I got the names of of the people that live there and we hand wrote uh on a valentine's day cards and i got them like little gifts and stuff like that and so at the end we went to the retirement community and the people who were doing a go rec they didn't know where we were going the residents there they didn't know that they were going to have visitors and so we went there and we we visited with people who you know, the elderly in the retirement communities. So many times those people are forgotten. You know, they live amazing lives. And then when it's hard for them to take care of themselves, a lot of times they're just kind of dumped off and, and left there. Right. So I took I took my class up there and we spent some time with them. You know, having them share stories with us and hugging them and just showing them that they're loved. You know, we had some some of the folks they straight out told us, I appreciate you guys coming so much. This means so much to us. I never see my family anymore. You know, so certain things like that, you know, so it's not just going out and it's not just beating down people for six hours or 12 hours. It's, it's basically helping build better Americans, you know? Right. Like character development too. It's not just uh Yeah. Yep. Do stuff like that. Also, you know, have them, you know, throw an obstacle at them. You know, hey, here's this obstacle. You guys have twenty minutes to figure out how to carry all this stuff. So then they have to come together as a team. You know, you got you got a neurosurgeon and you got somebody who works at Olive Garden coming together to try to build a contraption to carry a 200 pound sandbag for five or six miles. Right. And that, that's like straight out of, um, selection, right? Special forces selection. 
Exactly. Yep. So the 12 hour event, it's kind of like, it's kind of like 12 hours of a watered down day of special forces and special forces assessment and selection team week. So basically taking people who don't know each other, throwing obstacles at them and say, Hey, figure it out. But then also as the cadre, it's my job to take them and teach them some lessons. You know, I can teach them tactical things, you know, how to, how to conduct an ambush. Uh, also medical stuff, how to properly apply a tourniquet. And then they might be faced later on that night with a situation where they need to apply a tourniquet. Like one of the last, one of the last ones I did, it was uh, to commemorate the Mogadishu mile, the Black Hawk down stuff. So we were going and they were carrying a whole bunch of heavy stuff. Well, we stopped. I gave a tourniquet class. Made sure everybody knew how to do a tourniquet. I picked two people to be the medics. And so then we took off again. Well, we disappeared in the hills. And what I did was <laughs> I bought a sex doll. <laughs> but <laughs> but I cut a hole in its foot and I filled him with sand. And so I had this huge rucksack that these guys were carrying around this sand-filled sex doll the whole night. They had no idea what was in it. And so we get up in the hills and we stop and I say, hey, I'll be right back. And I disappear with this rucksack. Well, there's this abandoned Jeep out there that's been there for probably 25 or 30 years, halfway covered in sand. I stuck the sex doll inside of the Jeep. And so I brought everybody up there and then, you know, I told them a story, uh, one of the, that had to do with the timeline of, uh, the Black Hawk down situation. And then I said, he's bleeding out medics get to work. And so the medics had to go and give him a tourniquet, get him out of the, the Jeep, put him on a polis litter and we had to carry him to safety. So that's awesome. And if, if anyone's interested, any of the audience is interested in, in maybe participating in a Go Ruck event, well, where can they go to kind of get some more information? We just go to goruck.com, G-O-R-U-C-K.com. And then you can click on the events tab and you can, you know, click on the map, find an event near you. It's fun, man. Awesome. Yeah, I've I've seen the go, some of the go work stuff for a couple of years now. It's um, I think it's gotten it's grown a lot in the last couple of years. Yeah, it's it's really taken off. Really taken off. I have actually have a couple of events coming up uh, later on this month in uh, Carson City, Nevada. So I'm really excited about. It. It's the first time they're coming to Carson City. So I have some I have some pretty amazing things planned for that night. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. That's good stuff, man. And um, you know, I just I just want to thank you for coming on, man, taking out the time to do this. I know you're you're a pretty busy guy uh, with all the work you're doing, and and doing your your go ruck stuff. And um, you know, I I I appreciate your service and and also what you're continuing to do and serve now. It's it's a job that most people probably couldn't do, but someone needs to do it. And I think it's great that you're stepping up and, and taking care of it. Hey, man, I appreciate you. Appreciate you having me on. No worries, brother. I will talk to you soon. All right. See you.